The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Morning, everybody. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Squawk Box. AstraZeneca has revised down slightly the efficacy rate of its COVID vaccine after facing criticism over US trial data published earlier this week. Brussels and the UK look to ease tensions over vaccine exports and boost supplies across the continent, even as the EU takes steps to curb shipments. Wall Street closes in the red with the Nasdaq leading declines despite 10 year Treasury yields also falling and a sign the recent trading trend could be unwinding. And Chinese technology stocks tank as the US rolls out a law aimed at forced delistings, while Secretary of State Antony Blinken calls for allies to resist unfair trade tactics from Beijing. The onus is really going to be on China uh, to demonstrate um, that the pledges it's made on forced labor, on state-owned enterprises, on subsidies, uh, are not just talk. Plus, we've got gridlock in the Suez Canal. The ever-given container ship remains lodged in place, blocking passage through a route which accounts for a mere 12% of global sea trade. It was a late-day sell-off stateside for stocks. Uh, some of the volatility we've witnessed of late very much coming in the later part of the session. Investors still stressing about the rise in bond yields that we've witnessed lately and what that means for the direction of the big U.S. technology names. So you can see the extent of the selling 2% down. Big-name stocks, uh, the likes of Apple, Tesla, Amazon, having the biggest negative impact for the Nasdaq. And you can see that volatility at a percentage level, particularly for the likes of Tesla. But for the rest of the market, somewhat of a round trip for the Dow, actually trading positive one stage. It was holding on to uh, roughly about 360-odd points earlier in the session before reversing about three points. So you could see it was somewhat of a choppy day of trade as investors struggled to find direction because of this interest rate story and the recovery. We've had a lot of testimony recently from Jay Powell and Janet Yellen, very dovish messages. And while I think investors are somewhat soothed about the recovery and uh, how it remains intact. They're still concerned at this point about what lies ahead with how rapidly rates could rise if we do see a, a bounce in inflation despite some of those dovish comments. And let's take a look at those uh, US technology names up close. And this is how it played out, nearly 2 percent off the likes of Apple. Microsoft, one of the winners of the, the COVID trade, 9 tenths down. Netflix, a steeper fall, 2.6 off the streaming service, uh, Facebook's in the tune. And you could see outsized fall for the likes of Tesla, a more volatile stock. And, you know, this was highlighted before the inclusion in the S&P and the NASDAQ that you would see more volatility. It's brought that to the table very much. And you can see it in some of the downward as well as upward sessions. A quick look at Treasuries. Uh, despite the fact that we have not been climbing uh, towards that 1.75% mark, the high water level we witnessed last week, and we've been, in fact, falling in some of the sessions, it hasn't soothed those concerns that there will be another challenge on the the bond market at some point. As a number of commentators have pointed out, you don't just see a straight line move up in this yield. It often can jump in certain windows and then be a little bit sleepy in others. So I think uh, you've still got investors on tenterhooks around the, the bond market trade. A quick look at the oil price. Uh, a bit of a jump yesterday we witnessed in the trading session uh, based on the concerns around uh, this uh, ship that is stuck in the Suez Canal and blocking other key uh, 
traveling uh, or trade by other key ships. And what you've got as a result this morning, just to pull back from those high ranges, we're, we're pulling back by about 2.2% on the likes of WTI. U.S. futures, as we count you down to that U.S. session, have been looking more positive, suggesting that some of that red ink might uh, be reversed early on in the trading session today. So it's going to be fascinating to see how the markets react to all the latest news we have around COVID-19 and the vaccines that are being used to treat it. Let's kick off with the latest on the AstraZeneca story. The company has now lowered the efficacy rate of its vaccine to 76% from 79%, a modest tweak after submitting updated data to US health regulators. Juliana and Sylvia are going to join us to break down the developments, including, of course, the latest on the UK and the EU's vaccine export tensions. But let's go to Juliana first on the new Astra data. So I think we've all been scratching our head a little bit here, Juliana, trying to understand the process for the release of this information from AstraZeneca. Do we have clarity now that this is the right number? Well, uh, Jeff, this certainly is a more robust uh, analysis from AstraZeneca, and it is broadly in line with what they released on Monday. So they now say that the vaccine has 76% efficacy at preventing COVID-19, symptomatic COVID-19, compared to 79% initially. Uh, The vaccine, once again, 100% efficacious at preventing severe COVID and hospitalization. And get this, the number that they've given now for around preventing in the 65 plus crowd is 85%. So that's actually marginally higher than what they gave us on Monday, 80%. And the difference between what we had on Monday and what we have now is the addition of 100, uh, uh, the addition of 49 cases. So uh, the primary efficacy analysis that's presented today includes the accrual of 190 symptomatic cases among over 32,000 participants. That is 49 more than was presented in the interim analysis because the interim analysis had a cutoff of February 17th. Now, they say there's a possible 14 additional cases which have yet to be verified, so we could see the numbers fluctuate a little bit. But the bottom line here is this data is largely consistent with what they distributed on Monday. And worth noting that this release from AstraZeneca came out at 12.45 this morning, so an overnight release. And I just want to flag that because earlier this week, the release from the NIH, that came at 12.30 in the morning East Coast time. So the a series of events that have unfolded this week, uh, unprecedented from a process perspective. But based on this analysis, it looks as though AstraZeneca has followed the rules. The cutoff of February 17th was a predetermined cutoff date. And as we've seen with many of the vaccine makers, they have released interim analysis before the primary analysis, which has tended to be consistent, but potentially uh, slightly different, which is exactly what we've seen here today. So uh, very strong numbers, once again, from AstraZeneca. And this is a more robust analysis analysis, which will be used uh, as the basis for applying to the FDA for approval of this vaccine. Thank you, Julia. It just begs the question, does it? Why was the NIAID, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, so robust in their public disclosure uh, about these figures from AstraZeneca when it seems to me that it was an internal procedural matter? But there you go. Let's move on. I'm sure it's nothing like as crass as vaccine nationalism. No. 
No, it wouldn't be. Let's move on. The UK and European Union have sought to defuse tensions over their COVID vaccine programs, vowing instead to forge a, quote, reciprocally beneficial relationship and a win-win situation for all. Why don't we do that in the first place if it's that easy? Anyway, the joint statement out of London and Brussels came just hours after the EU announced plans to tighten its vaccine export controls. Despite a sluggish start to its vaccine rollout, 40 million doses have left companies based in EU uh, countries for export, uh, the bulk of which have gone to the, the United Kingdom. So the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson warned a potential long-term damage would be uh, enacted if the restrictions on vaccine exports were to turn turn into a full ban. I don't think that blockades of, uh, of either vaccines or of um, uh, medicines or of, of, of ingredients for vaccines are, are sensible. And I think that the long-term uh, damage done uh, by blockades can be uh, can be very considerable. I would just I, I would just um, uh, gently point out to anybody considering uh, a blockade and, or an interruption of, of supply chains that uh, companies uh, may uh, look at such actions and uh, and, and draw conclusions about uh, about whether or not it is sensible to make uh, to make future investments in uh, in countries where you know uh, arbitrary blockades are, are imposed so sylvia who joins us now sylvia i've been looking through all the statements i can't find the bit where brussels admits that they screwed up where actually they stopped blaming individual private companies which they were late to invest in late to invest in their own distribution mechanism but maybe maybe we'll find that in the sound that you've got from valides dombrovskis well, the European Commission said yesterday, Steve, that this is not an export ban, that this is not targeted at one specific country. But let me explain what's changing here, because the EU has had uh, these export restrictions in place since the end of January, in fact. But that legislation is coming to an end at the end of this month. And the Commission said yesterday it wants to extend it, but also to step it up. And now what the Commission wants to do is to assess any export, uh, any exports of COVID-19 vaccines based on additional principles and those include they will take into consideration if the recipient country has a better epidemiological situation and that means a higher vaccination rate as well and the commission also wants to take into consideration if the country receiving the COVID-19 vaccines has some sort of restrictions either on the vaccines themselves or on the raw materials needed to produce these COVID-19 shots. But let's take a look uh, indeed at some of the remarks from the Commissioner for Trade, Valdis Dombrovskis, at the press conference yesterday. Since the introduction of the export authorization system, some 10 million doses had been exported from UK, from EU to UK, and zero doses had been exported from UK to EU. So if we discuss uh, uh, reciprocity, uh, solidarity and, uh, so to say, global uh, responsibility. So it's uh, clear that we also need to look at those uh, aspects of uh, reciprocity and uh, proportionality. So Valdis Dombrovskis is there explaining how the UK might find itself under these new rules that the Commission is considering uh, putting forward. Uh, and essentially the, the reason here why the, EU, the UK is under potential scrutiny is because it has a higher vaccination rate. And at the same time, as you heard there, the Commission says that none of the COVID-19 vaccines produced in the United Kingdom have gone to the EU. And so the idea is to address that imbalance from a European perspective 
And that's why yesterday afternoon they indeed issued a statement saying that they are working together, they're trying to overcome this gap and cooperate when it comes to the supplies of COVID-19 vaccines. I have to say though that we're not expecting an immediate breakthrough in these negotiations, but it's definitely a positive development after the tit-for-tat that we have seen over the last few weeks between the UK and the EU over the coronavirus situation. Sylvia, thank you very much for that. Uh, we're just going to pick up on that conversation. And, you know, we've been quizzing a lot of Europeans, including uh, Don Vrossus himself, and we've asked about what it says about the credibility of Europe at this point by halting exports of vaccines. And I think it does send a message. I mean, India is another example. We've been hearing reports <laughs> about a suspension and temporary halt to exports of the AstraZeneca vaccine from that country as well, the same place where this, uh, what is it, a, a double mutant may have potentially been found, a, a change in the virus yet again. So it feels as though there's a race against time at this point and Europe's doing what it wants for its domestic population. But I do fear as though there may be a cost more broadly as we talk about a global recovery. Uh, so, so let's just look at what's going on here. So the EU was slow to order and the nature of the contracts that it drafted with the commercial entities involved were less binding. So it was slow and it didn't understand how to tie up a, a watertight contract in spite of the fact that it is a very legalistic body. And the third thing is ultimately that it is now determined that the vaccine rollout program globally should go at the pace of the slowest and the least efficient member. This is a levelling down not a levelling up. And the claim that this, I think as Sylvia was saying, is the justification, the claim that this will help EU citizens is patently nonsense. Because there are hundreds of thousands of unused vaccines, as we know, both Pfizer and AstraZeneca, that are currently sat in chillers in medical facilities in Eurozone countries. So this does nothing of the sort. This is the, the maths of madness, if you ask me. But hey, what do I know? We have a 27-member uh, block here run by uh, an, a, a, a body that sits above it in Brussels that clearly knows better. It's the have your cake and eat it scenario, isn't it, around the contracts? Well, it's, it's not even that, is it? Because no, I mean, there's, not the enough, there's not enough cake for them to eat. No, the point around the contracts, you can wriggle out of it no. if the vaccines don't work. I mean, there's no guarantee early on that they would be a success. But then you're potentially on the hook for paying out funds to these companies that have gone no, down the pathway. Guys, the, the problem with the contract is that the line regarding the EU contract was AstraZeneca will make best endeavours. In the UK contract, it is more binding in the language. There's a difference. Steve. Well, for a start, Valdis Dombrovskis, when I confronted him with the strength of the contracts, completely and utterly denied that. So someone's being disingenuous here. So look, there's a couple of points. I just want to raise a bit more detail here. Jeff, you are very badly wrong, by the way, about something. And I would never contradict either of you unless I was sure of my facts. You said there are hundreds of thousands of unused uh, vials of the vaccines lying there across Europe. You are very badly wrong, as you well know where I'm going on this already. There are millions of unused vaccines across the EU, which is the greatest irony of ironies as well. And again, I'm going straight to the horse's mouth. I'm not looking uh, at the newspapers or reports. I'm at the raw data here on on the EC's own website that says 69.5 million doses have been delivered to the EU. 
51 million doses have been administered in the EU. So there are millions of sitting there, plus including this ludicrous story from La Stampa yesterday. I know you all saw it as well, where the Italian authorities had a tip off and they thought that they were getting a raid on an extra 30 million doses, 29 million to be exact, uh, that were unused and that were going to go to the Brits and what have you. And they thought they had a really big scoop here. Well, actually, it turns out they hadn't been distributed yet, these 29 million vaccines in an Italian manufacturing site because they were waiting quality approval. And of those, a large amount of them were going to COVAX, which, as all our viewers know, is, is to help emerging nations around the world uh, inoculate their population. The rest, yeah, they were going to Belgium as well. So this great non-story once again, which was trying to say that AstraZeneca was acting dastardly, that they were handing it to the British as well. It's just ridiculous. And then we get to this Halix plant in the Netherlands as well, which is what a large amount of the debate has been about. The Halix plant that isn't even approved yet for distributing vaccines or producing vaccines in the EU. Yeah, that's right. The European authorities haven't even approved of it yet. And they're blaming the Brits for trying to take off all the production of that and hand it across the channel as well. This blame game is ridiculous. Ridiculous. The inability of these people to look in the mirror and say, we need to actually stop blaming these companies and working with these companies. And I will disagree with Boris Johnson about a thousand things. There are many, many things that the UK Prime Minister and his government have got wrong in this crisis as well. But one thing he's right, if you start treating these companies independent, international, TNCs, transnational corporations. And the point there is transnational. If you start treating them as state entities by bringing in all kinds of emergency legislation, again, as Boris Johnson, quite right for one, saying, what's that going to do for when those companies are next deciding where they want to have their manufacturing sites, if they want to be international companies? It brings me right back to what um, the boss of Merck, Argay, said to all of us about three years ago, that Europe's got to be very careful how it treats companies and how it entices companies into the continent. Sorry, guys, I just find it absolutely ridiculous at the moment. I think, unfortunately, that the narrative around Europe has changed. I mean, straight up, uh, there was a lot of uh, cheering and backslapping around how quickly Europe brought stimulus to the table in this crisis. Now the twists and turns around the vaccine story, the procurement that's gone wrong. And uh, I think at an individual, individual country level, some of the issues are that uh, while the government might have secured some of the vaccines, you've got regional governments dispersing it. And that's where it starts to slip through the cracks. You don't have that orderly process taking place. And if you think about regional governments, I mean, how many times have we spoken about, uh, you know, governments that are at loggerheads with uh, national or state governments? So you can see where there is a problem in Europe, I think, with this uh, cohesiveness. And again, it's being exposed in yet another crisis, not through the fiscal monetary side that we normally see it expressed, but through another way, through the vaccine story. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my understanding was that uh, in, in particular, the Irish uh, and the Dutch were resistant to, to this step being taken. Uh, but clearly they have to go with the consensus here. So they have been pulled into this export ban at the same time. And for the Irish in particular, I think this raises some very difficult questions because the Irish have presented themselves as a hub for American technology companies. Now, this demonstration of intervention by the EU once again raises questions about technology companies that locate themselves in the EU, will they be facing pressure going forward? Because if we're going to do this um, solidarity and everybody needs to catch up business, 
when do we start focusing on the fact that Europe just doesn't seem to be incubating technology companies that can compete with those across the Atlantic? What do we do? Do we hold back American tech companies so that European ones can catch up? How does this play out? If we translate this same approach to other industries, what ultimately is the end conclusion? Unfortunately, I suspect what Steve has talked about and what Boris Johnson has been hinting at, that companies will decide not to locate themselves within the block. Technology, taxes, uh, entrepreneur taxes, that's really where the wriggle room comes down to at this point. Uh, Coming up on the programme then, France rushes to accelerate its vaccination drive as virus cases surge across parts of the country. We'll have a look at the situation in Paris when we come back that AstraZeneca is all over our uh, podcast and uh, the progress on vaccines. So the Squatbox podcast, apparently it is vintage this time around. So that'll be available online later on this morning. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Belgium has reimposed strict lockdown measures to curb the surge in coronavirus cases. Schools and universities will move teaching online, while close contact businesses such as hairdressers and beauty salons will shut until the end of April. The country reported a 40% jump in confirmed infections over the past week. German Chancellor Angela Merkel has announced a major U-turn, dropping plans to impose a five-day lockdown over Easter just a day after it was announced. The German leader rejected calls from all three opposition parties for a no-confidence vote in the government and apologised to Germans for the confusion. To be clear, the idea of an Easter shutdown was designed with the best of intentions because we absolutely must manage to slow down and reverse the third wave of the pandemic. This mistake is solely my fault because in the end I bear the ultimate responsibility for everything. Well, at least there's a politician there that says sorry. I have to say, I do admire Frau Merkel for that. Uh, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has raised the possibility of imposing tougher measures on hauliers and people arriving from France as cases uh, rise in that country. Johnson told MPs that a balance needs to be struck between maintaining trade and protecting the country from new variants. This country depends very largely uh, for the food in our shops, uh, for the medicines that we, uh, we need on that trade flowing smoothly. Now, we will take a decision, uh, no matter how tough, uh, to uh, interrupt that trade uh, and to interrupt those flows uh, if uh, we think that it is necessary to protect public health and to stop new variants uh, coming in. And, and it may be that we, uh, that we have to do that uh, very soon. 
So as we just said, things are getting tough in France as well, and they're talking about extending containment measures. But 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 Charlotte, I want to come straight to you this on this one. It, it just sounds, and I'm talking to listening to French people here, not British interpretation. Uh, for instance, Gilles Pialou, who is the head of infectious diseases at Paris Tenon Hospital, says these measures make no sense and are completely disconnected from reality. I don't see how this can slow the disease. We're heading into a brick wall. And just one more point, an Alab poll indicates yesterday that 74% of French people thought the latest light lockdown was absolutely incoherent. What on earth's going on, Charlotte? And that's really the issue there is that the measures that were announced uh, last week for 16 uh, regions, including the Paris area, uh, were just basically just adding that non-essential shops would close, but all the other measures were already in place. Um, hospitality and leisure already being closed, curfews and the cases, the new cases were already very high at 35,000 cases a day on average. So just adding the closing of non-essential shops, uh, there was really a question of would that be enough to really hold back this new wave of uh, cases? And now as we have more and more voices calling for stricter measures for more strict lockdown because people at the moment under the new rules are allowed to spend as much time outdoors as they want. Um, so uh, also more voices to call for closing of schools because schools have remained open throughout uh, since September, since they, they reopened this year. They stayed open during the second wave, but now there's really more and more voices saying that the schools need to close. So look, uh, the, the pressure in hospitals is really growing at 27,000 people in hospitals at the moment, 4,600 in ICUs as close to what we had in the second wave, those 5,000 numbers, uh, 5,000 in the second lockdown. So really, we're getting very close to these numbers. And in Paris, for example, the number in ICU is already higher than what you had in the second wave. That's why you have more and more calls of saying we need stricter measures because we are about to hit the wall here. So um, we'll have a press conference later today from the government as weekly COVID presser. We'll get some more measures about uh, apparently three more regions that are about to be put under the stricter uh, measures. So we'll hear later today on this, but there's really, uh, we know that they try to accelerate the vaccine rollout. They will open these big vaccination centers. You have 300,000 vaccinations done yesterday. There's really a question of whether a quick vaccination would have had an impact on this wave. The argument is that it probably wouldn't have an impact on the number of cases. That's why, for example, in the UK, you are still in lockdown, even though you have about 30% of the population vaccinated. But really the, sol the solution to this really is accelerating the vaccination. They're really trying to put this out for the next uh, few weeks, but it's really been difficult and there are several difficult weeks ahead, guys. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.